found this uh, story quite extraordinary um, as a pastor. I was reading this week. I'm always looking for good sermon illustrations. And um, when he was appointed as the pastor of the church in Cambridge, England, in the year 1783, Charles Simeon was excited. He was overjoyed. But the people of the church, they didn't really quite share his joy. Many of the prominent members of the church opposed the new pastor's convictions. Here's the conviction. He wanted to reach the lost with the gospel. And they opposed it. To show their displeasure, they locked the pew boxes. Now, we don't have any clue what a pew box is. Most of you have never sat in a pew. You, you know what pew means. It's pe- pepe la pew, and you've got some, that, but that's not a pew. A pew is a bench in a church. Sometimes it has a cushion. Most of the times not. Um, and then what they had, pew boxes, they had like little um, armrests that, that delineated the seat. And then you, I guess at, at some point you could lock those down so other people couldn't sit in your seat. And so they locked the pew boxes. These people that didn't want this new pastor evangelizing, reaching the loss of the gospel. And, uh, and, and so the, the church seats were empty. Uh, and the only people who were coming to hear Pastor Simon, Simon or Simeon preach, or they had to stand in the aisles or sit in the aisles. And eventually, despite all this opposition from this new pastor, God began to work in this church. Um, there was, in fact... Simeon's ministry had a more powerful influence on the nation of England than anybody could have guessed. And, and his, his efforts to encourage missionary work, not only in England, but abroad, around the world. Uh, during the dark days of opposition, though, Simeon wrote this. He said, in this state of things, I saw no remedy except patience and faith. It was painful to see the church, the, with the exception of the aisles, almost completely forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, then there would be, uh, on the whole, as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. He said, this comforted my heart many times when, without such reflection, I should have sunk under the weight of my burden. See, hardship, if you've been in ministry at all, for like five minutes, you know it can be hard, right? Hardship, difficulty, and opposition do not mean that we're doing things wrong. They don't. In fact, it's often evidence that we're doing things right. We have an enemy that we can't see. He opposes us as we walk in obedience, right? So if we allow ourselves to be deterred from doing anything, unless we have complete approval and ease in the doing, it's certain that we're going to never accomplish anything of value as the church. Rather than being discouraged by opposition, we need to take comfort in God's faithfulness and keep doing what is right. Keep doing what he has already told us in his word. We walk forward in faithfulness. We face opposition and difficulties as Christ's followers. All too often we take that opposition or hardship to mean that God is displeased with us. Or he's punishing us. Or he's worse, he's abandoned us. Well, God does discipline his children. In fact, Scripture says 
If you haven't been taken to the woodshed and spanked at least once, you're not God's kid. He disciplines his children whom he loves. And, and so um, it would seem that we misunderstand what God's doing because we don't always understand his ways. His ways are mysterious. And, and sometimes, even for us who are born again and have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, his ways are mysterious. We don't always understand. And it, it's a particular occurrence that I, that I see uh, as I look at the church, capital C, and I've also lived that. I've lived that confusion, like, God, what are you doing? I thought I was, I was I'm in full-time ministry. I'm doing this for you. Why are you disciplining me? And the message always comes through eventually. Or, or, the message comes through immediately. It takes me longer to understand it. And he says, I love you. You're my kid. I discipline my children whom I love. So we know that if we're committed to doing his will in any given circumstance, he's going to provide, he's going to send provision that we need to see the task done. God is a good daddy. He provides for his children, not just our sustenance, not just what we need for daily living, but what we need to walk in obedience day to day and to engage in the ministry that he's called each one of us to. Now, that sounds weird to some of you. Some of you are like, I'm not in ministry. I don't ever want to be a pastor. I don't want to be in parachurch ministry. I don't want to jump out of planes. Parachurch. <laughs> caffeine. Everybody, the back third, needs caffeine. Um, <laughs> thanks, Nick. Yeah, this, 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 this is the reality for us, okay? What we need to walk in our daily obedience, He provides. What we need in order to engage in ministry, He provides. And He's called each one of us to it, to some form of ministry, not vocationally necessarily, but ministry nonetheless. And so today's text makes this point very clear to us. So let's dive in. We're in uh, the Harmony of the Gospels, section 104. And this whole section is actually 104 and 105, but it has two, uh, two sections, and it has all four gospel accounts in both. This is a rarity in the Harmony of the Gospels. So we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John here, and then talk about that section, and then go read the next section in all four Gospels. So Matthew 14, 13 and 14, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. They went ashore. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Here's what Mark says. And remember again, Mark's gospel is Peter's eyewitness account. Peter was an illiterate blue-collar worker, and so Mark wrote it down for him. And so Mark's gospel, verse 31 to 34, and he said to them, Jesus, come, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And so they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I know I've used this word before. That, that word compassion, he had compassion on them. It's splognizomai, right? We've talked about that. It's, that's a hard Greek word, splognizomai. And it's just like your stomach's churning inside. You see the, the need of this huge group of people, and your stomach just turns. It's like, oh, man. They, they need the Lord. They need 
you know, to be led. And so this is what's happening here in, in Mark's account. And then Luke 9, and, 9, 10, and 11, uh, Luke 9, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned about it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And then here's John's account. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 6, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. Okay, so let's unpack this section. Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been teaching crowds of people. And at this point, he's trying to pull away with his disciples just to get away from ministry for a few days, just to get a little retreat, a little rest, some private time. But these crowds have had a taste of the miraculous. They have seen Jesus do incredible supernatural things, and they want more. They want to see that. They have needs that still are unmet in their lives. And so they're they're intrigued. They're excited about this rabbi prophet person. And they're beginning to wonder if he is, in fact, the promised one that has finally come to Israel. And also remember, Israel is occupied by Rome at this time, right? So one of the cultural undercurrents in, this, in, this, uh, in the Bible and in this particular section of history is... Um, is the fierce desire for the Jews to regain their freedom and drive out the Roman occupation. Like this also fuels their desire for the Messiah to come and deliver them. Now they're not thinking about deliverance in a spiritual sense. They're not thinking about deliverance from their sins so that they can stand in the presence of God. They're thinking about a political and military deliverance to get the Roman occupation out. That's the primary push that they're feeling. And so this is, this is driving this desire for the Messiah to come and deliver him. And, and so they're, they're, they're focused on the national oppression. And there were many claims. I don't know if you knew this. There were many claims by many people to be the Messiah in those days. And so the people had been, like they put their hope in someone who had said, I, I'm the Messiah, and th- then he wasn't. And so they've been, they've been you know, lifted up emotionally and then dropped and lifted up emotionally and dropped. And it's just, it's been exhausting. Uh, this is why we see on Palm Sunday, this, this desire for a Messiah, desire for a deliverer. They're thinking politically, nationally. You see it on Palm Sunday. They're shouting, deliver us, deliver us. They're, they're waving palm branches. Listen, in, in ancient Israel, that's not a symbol of peace. That's like the stars and stripes to us. They're waving their national emblem, right? So this is a big deal. This is precisely why Jesus wept over that crowd because they did not understand the hour of their visitation or the true reason that he had come in the flesh. So pay close attention. It's near to Passover again at this point in the text. And Passover, if you'll remember, is the, is the remembrance of the liberation of the nation of Israel from Egyptian domination and captivity. So it's that time of year on the Jewish calendar that elicits national pride and their desire for freedom. Just think about the 4th of July, and you, you can relate. Like we, we were once under tyranny, and now we're free. 
And we celebrate that with lots of explosions and setting things on fire because we're Americans, right? And they, and they, they have the kind of similar, similar mindset, like this is a big deal. And so Moses, if you'll remember in the Old Testament, had spoken to the people during their Exodus wanderings just before he died, and he promised there would come a prophet like himself unto the people of Israel. So you can just, you can just know, like it's a safe bet that in this crowd's imagination, they're looking for that prophet like Moses. They're looking for their deliverer who is to come. And they're seeing this guy do miracles and heal people. And so the, their expectations are rising right now, okay? And it's no coincidence that Jesus had said earlier, if you believed in Moses, you believe in me, for he wrote about me. So that just fuels the fire, right? And now they're up on a mountain receiving a teaching. Now just pause and think about that image, how being brought up by a leader onto a mountain to hear from him, to hear from God, right? Isn't that what happened with Moses? Moses went up on Mount Sinai, took Aaron with him, and like here's the mountain, going up on the mountain. This is, this is like we're going to go up into the presence of God, as it were. So for them, this echoes Moses going up to receive the law in some ways. There's a, there's a hungry multitude needing to be fed, just like the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness wanderings when God had to miraculously feed them. So this is the setup. Just, just see the parallel here, okay? So we'll go to section 105, the next section, and we have all four gospel accounts. So let's read these together again. Matthew 14, verses 15 to 21. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. That's incredible. That's an incredible miracle. Here's Mark's account, Mark six thirty-five to 44. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give it to them to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. I like when we have four accounts because I get to say basically the same thing with differing details again and again. It's just driving it in our hearts. It's pressing it into our minds, right? So here's Luke, Luke 9, 12 to 17. 
Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Hey, send these crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're going to go and buy food for all these people. For here there were about 5,000 men. And so he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Okay, now we've got one more account. We've got John now. Listen. Listen to what John says. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to, for each to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, Hey, there's a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And then they, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So, again, Nobody in the crowd brought food except for this one boy. There's no grocery store. There's no fast food places to pop in. <laughs> You're an addict. You're an addict, and, and you need help. And I know because I am too. I, um, yeah, no. Um, you can't even pick up your cell phone and call DoorDash, okay? And to make matters worse, the crowd is larger. This crowd is larger than the population of most of the nearby villages. Like, how can they go into a village? Are they going to decimate that place? So what's Jesus supposed to do? This is a prime teaching moment. This is a prime teaching moment. Jesus asks the disciples to see if they've been paying attention so far. He knows what he intends to do, and this is going to be a test for them. And as I think about this passage, um, I think about being a parent and, and we who are parents, especially of younger children, should thank God for moments like this. I said younger children, but I mean, my kids are teenage and, and young adults, and we still have teaching moments like this. Um, we have all kinds of opportunities to set an example for our children by praying with them and trusting God, inviting our kids into those faith moments, seeing God come through with answered prayer. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal because not only is our faith built up as moms and dads, our kids' faith, whether they're little or whether they're teenagers or whether they're young adults, their faith is built up. And I pray that you have one of those this week. I pray that you have a moment where you, you have a need in your home, one of your kids has a need, and you don't know how you're going to meet that need, but you stop and pray, and then you see God answer that prayer. It's such an incredible growth experience for you as a parent and for your your children. 
when it comes, test your children in this and ask him in the moment, what should we do? What should we do? And then coach them to stop and pray. And, 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 and mom and dad, listen to me. You do the same. Pray out loud. Don't, don't be the, the silent prayer parent, right? Where the kid doesn't get to hear what you're saying to God. They need to hear you interact with the Lord, okay? And so coach them, coach them. And uh, this teaches them that they can go to God for help. They don't have to go through you all the time. They can go directly to God. Your kids need to know that. They need to learn that, right? You want your kids to have a direct relationship with the Lord, even though you're going to be coaching them well into their teens and, and beyond. You're going to be coaching. So when, when you begin to get the regular response from your children, whenever something comes up in your home and you hear your kids say, hey, we should pray, mom. Hey, dad, we should just pray about that. You know you're doing well. You know you've ingrained that in your kids. That's, a, that's the goal. That's the goal. And again, I love what Jesus says here in response to the suggestion that they just send all these people away. He says, they don't need to go away. You need to give them something to eat. He said this to test his disciples for he himself. He knew exactly what he was going to do. But it's Philip who points out the lunacy of this with his practical assessment. He's like, John, John 6, 7, Philip said, 200 denarii. Like, that's more than a year's wage. Like, we don't even have enough money to feed these people a little morsel each. Like, what good would that do? And the other gospel accounts of this incident, the disciples recommend that Jesus, you know, just, just send them away. They can fend for themselves. Just let them go. And I, and I got to stop and comment here about that. Because what I've seen, and I've been in the church my whole life, this is the way the church too often responds. As a, as a general generalization, there are exceptions. This church is an exception. But we, punt, we like to punt the ball. We're just going to punt, kick it down the field, and let somebody else have it. We walk away from the predicament. We say in our hearts, it's not my problem. And, 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 and we need to break that in our hearts. We need to break that. Uh, Philip sees clearly the enormity of this task. It is too huge. It's too big. It's impossible. It would take more than six months wages to give even person, every person just a little bit of food. And, and so Philip sees all the reasons in the flesh that this isn't going to work. And he, and he tells them. He lists them out. And I do this often. If, you, if, if you're a critical thinker, if you're a str- strategic thinker, you're already five moves down the chessboard, anticipating your opponent's counter moves. You've already thought this through a little bit. And Jesus says to people like that, to people like me, just be here in the moment and trust me. Just be here in the moment and trust me. Put your faith in me. Let me do the work that you can't do. I'm not asking you to do the work that you can't do. I'm asking you to stop and let me do the work that only I can do. And at this point, Andrew, Peter's brother, he, he weighs in. He mentions as a boy, right? He's got the five loaves, the two fish. And, and, and he, then he says, he says on the heels of that, he, he, he says, yeah, we got this food, but it's not anywhere near enough. And Andrew doesn't understand all of this either. He, he just trusts the Lord to know what's going on. And so he offers the kid with the lunchbox to Jesus. It's like, here, what are we going to do something, Lord? Uh, maybe he was discouraged and, and a little sarcastic. I don't know. Maybe he was hopeful. 
Maybe he was frustrated. He's daring Jesus. We don't, we don't know what was going on. Uh, but Andrew gives Jesus the information to see what he's going to do with it. And now, now Jesus acts. So John 6.10, Jesus said, okay, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And again, we've got to keep in mind that's 5,000 men. This crowd was bigger than that. What's not counted here in the text is all the women and children. It's likely that this crowd was somewhere between 15,000 people and 20,000 people. Because most Jewish homes, they didn't just have one child. They had several. It was an agrarian society. You needed kids to help with the, the production of food, right? And so this, we're, not, we're not even counting here in the text the women and children. It's likely that the crowd was much larger. So Jesus takes these loaves and fish. He's giving thanks. thanks. He, he distributes them to those who are seated. And then see the result here. They all ate as much as they wanted. They ate and were satisfied. Now, I find it intriguing because there's a little element of communion here in, in this. We partake, we remember, like we just did a few moments ago, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken for us, the bread broken, his blood poured out for us, the, the, the juice, the, the juice of the vine, right? And they, there's, there's an element here. They're, they're, they're having broken bread, right? Um, here in the Gospels, the bread is broken, feeds a multitude, and there's still more for others beyond ourselves. What it speaks to here in the text is the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Jesus is broken, and it's enough. It's not just enough. It's more than enough. It's abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine, Paul says. It's, a, it's amazing to me. Now stop and consider this. Jesus could have easily provided food without this kid's lunch. He could have just spoken the food into existence. Feast. Kosher. Kosher feast. Just Jewish audience. Think about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Satan tells him to turn those stones into bread. Jesus didn't do it in that context because that would have been giving into temptation. Thus, Jesus would have sinned and none of us would have salvation. There are plenty of rocks laying around, though. You remember what Satan said? Hey, take these rocks. Turn them into bread. You're hungry. There's plenty of rocks laying around that could have been turned into warm, buttery crescent rolls. Crescent rolls. I mean, Jesus could have gone that route. But God in history was choosing to work primarily through people. And he continues to work through people. When God parted the Red Sea, it was through the lifting of Moses' staff. He used people. See, God doesn't just do all the work while we sit back and watch passively. He invites us into his working. He expects us to do our part and to be faithful to make our contribution. He likes doing projects with his kids. He likes it. Now, I don't know how many of you guys, most of you have raised children or are in the process of raising children, working with kids is not easy. And if you're a mommy or a daddy, you're thinking to yourself, at some point in that project, this would go a lot faster if the kid would go play and I could just get it done. God never says that to us. He's so patient. He's so patient with us. And so they, th this is the reality, right? He uses us 
in his working, even though he knows it's going to slow the process down. That's, our, that's on our end. But he, he wants us to be active with him in what he's doing in the world. And he likes to do projects with his children. And so the conclusion of this episode is my favorite part here in John 6, 12 to 13. When they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up all the fragments, let nothing be lost. And they gathered him up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and, and that were left by those who had eaten. So you've got a crowd of 15 to 20,000 people, uh, five loaves and two fish, and you get leftovers? How does that happen? That's incredible. Don't miss this. Twelve baskets? Twelve baskets? What's, what's so significant about the number 12? Well, if you're a Jew, you're, you're, you're a member of one of 12 tribes. You're a member of one of the 12 tribes of the Jewish nation. If you're a Jew and you see the number 12, that's the first thing you think of. Your identity as a member of the nation of Israel is one of the 12 tribes. Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And this is deliberate in the text. So what is Jesus saying to us here? He's demonstrating, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the long-awaited Messiah. He's saying that he is sufficient for the nation of Israel to provide for their needs. He's saying he's their king. He's demonstrating that he is their king. And, and, and this prayer that Paul prays to the Ephesian church echoes this idea of God's sufficiency, his provision. When Paul says, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. Now, I read that prayer and I get to that verse and I'm thinking, I don't know, God, because i got a pretty good imagination. I can think of some wild stuff. I can think about all the things I want. And he says, you don't even come close. You can't, even, you can't even grasp. And your imagination it falls so short of who I am and what I can do. Paul says, so to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us. You see the synergy? You see God's working and our working with him? His inviting us into the work? According to the power that's within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, now back up with me here for just a moment so we can see this and appreciate God's intentionality and deliberateness and just overall awesomeness. Jesus and the disciples had been over to the region of the Gadarenes. Remember at one point they had met the demoniac and, and Jesus had cast the legion of demons out of that man and into the herd of swine. Do you remember? And then these people from that region called the Decapolis, Deca in Greek is 10, right? So the 10 cities, they wanted Jesus gone. He had wrecked a major source of commerce. He had freaked them out. The people from that region called the Decapolis, they just didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But the man who'd been freed from the demons, do you remember? He wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you stay here. You're my first indigenous missionary to the 10 cities. You go and tell people what God has done for you. It's crazy. 
This man who'd been freed from the demons, Jesus, Jesus said, you can't come with us. I've got a mission for you here. And then later when Jesus returns to this region, there are going to be crowds you'll see waiting for him when he gets out of the boat. Why? Well, because this former demoniac had been faithful. He was the first indigenous missionary. And, and the people that came out with that crowd were Gentiles. And, and, and Jesus is going to sit down with them. You'll see this in the text when we get there. He's going to sit down with the people coming out of the ten cities because of what this man has told them, because of his witness and his testimony. There are going to be all these people come out of the cities, and they're going to come to Jesus, and they're going to sit down. And then, and then Jesus is going to feed them in a very similar fashion. And then do you know how many baskets are left over in that episode? Seven. Maybe you knew that, but do you know why? Now, if you go back to the book of Joshua, you find out there are seven Gentile nations that were driven out of the promised land that eventually settled in a region that became known as the Ten Cities, the Decapolis. So here's what Jesus is saying. Twelve Jewish tribes, twelve baskets of plenty. Seven Gentile nations, seven baskets of plenty. Jesus is saying, I'm the God who provides for Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is saying, I am the God who provides for everyone. And and more than this, Jesus is the manna from heaven. He is our, our very sustenance. He is our source of life. What an incredible reality in the church, having God speak to us, to be around us at all times, for him to come and live inside of each of us by faith. I don't know that we take the requisite time and thought to really ponder what that means. I know I don't. And in a moment like this, I'm just thinking, my mind is reeling about all the implications of that. It's incredible. But even the knowledge of those incredible realities, even in that knowledge, we tend to make some grievous mistakes. So I want to just delineate two mistakes that we commonly make as we're trying to walk this out so that you can be aware of it. The the first mistake, mistake number one is, I will do it all. I'll just, I'll do it all. We try to take over the plan. We try to do it ourselves. And when this happens, we operate in the flesh. We end up operating in the flesh. And nothing that we do in the flesh... Scripture tells us it's pleasing to God. Just so you hear that again, nothing, no thing that we do in our flesh is pleasing to God. Nothing. Plus, there's the added weight of trying to accomplish something God has commanded in the power of our own weakness, not strength. We don't have strength. We have weakness. Okay? And so you may as well hand a toddler a running chainsaw and point them to a tree. Nothing good's going to come of that. Just like nothing's going to come of me in my flesh trying to do something for the Lord. I don't have the strength, the knowledge, or the ability to pull it off. It's, it's, it's It's just like the toddler with the chainsaw. It's beyond his ability to accomplish, and so is the case with you and me. When we're in the flesh, we can't do it. We can't do it. You can't do it. You can't even obey God in yourself. You need the Holy Spirit to set up permanent shop in your life in order to do anything pleasing to God. It's by grace through faith. It's not of our works so, that no, so we can't boast about it. We don't have anything to boast about. So that's the first mistake. I'll do it all. I'll do it. 
I got it, Lord. Don't worry. No, you, you just rest. I got it. Second mistake is the inverse of the first. I'm not going to do anything because God's just going to do it. He's already decided to do it from eternity past. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to engage. I will do nothing, and God will do it all. While it's true that God has all power and we have none apart from him, he prefers to work together with us. And given some of our track records, it's like, praise you, Lord, for your grace and your patience. I'm I'm there, right? I mean, he could get it done a lot quicker and more thoroughly than when we help him. (laughs) We're going to help God. But he values the relationship. He values us. He wants, to, he wants us to grow in Christ's likeness. He's a good daddy who doesn't let his kids abdicate their responsibilities. Nevertheless, sometimes we withhold what we've got to hold. Uh, we, got, or we, we hold back on what God's commanded us to do. And, and so our motivation may be selfish. It may be fear, whatever it is. But we fail to offer up sometimes what um, God, uh, offer up to God all that we have. We give him our, we're supposed to give him our all. And I think the greatest struggle is in knowing that what little I do have is inf- insufficient to see all that needs to be done, done. I, I, want, I really want to accomplish this thing in my flesh because I want the glory and I want the credit and I want to be praised by people. And God says, no, I deliberately short-circuited it that way so that you couldn't, so that you wouldn't, your head wouldn't like a big balloon and pop all of a sudden. Like he, he did this on purpose. He did this on purpose. See, our motivation, well, I, I don't know what your motivation is. I know that I struggle with selfishness and fear. And I think, I think the greatest struggle, again, is just knowing that I'm, I'm insufficient to do what God wants me to do. I don't want to be insufficient, but it's his spirit in me. It's his spirit in you that makes us sufficient. And so God, he values relationship with us. He values our growth, which is always in process. If you're still alive in that body that you're wearing, you're still growing in Christ Jesus. And you'll stop growing when your heart stops beating and you stand before him. Okay? So, um, so okay, so let me ask you a question. Given all of that, what's your next step? What's your next step? And if you want to have coffee and have that conversation with your pastor this week, I am happy to have it. I want to, I want to help you. I want to coach you. But every Sunday, you get instruction. And then four nights a week, you have the opportunity to gather with other believers from Emmaus Road to talk through the meaning and the application of what was presented on Sunday in our life groups. I just want to ask you, are you taking advantage of that opportunity? to grow? Or are you being passive in your Christian walk? Because as this church grows, there are going to be more and more opportunities to connect with the body of Christ and explore your faith. And we're committed to seeing every born-again believer in Jesus Christ at ER moving forward at their own pace, at your own pace, becoming more like Jesus. That's the Great Commission. It's not just go tell. It's go tell so that we can make disciples of all the nations. And disciples are in a process of maturation. And so 
this necessarily means that you have to choose to engage beyond simply showing up on Sunday. I'm glad that you're here on Sunday. Some of you are so faithful to Sunday mornings, but that's not enough. That's not enough. You and I as born-again, blood-bought people of the book, we must be faithful to engage in what Christ calls us to. The bread that you receive, just like the crowd up on the mountainside, the bread that you receive on Sunday morning, it's not enough to sustain you all week. It's not enough. Read the word for yourself. Wrestle with the word. Text me. Call me. Call your life group leader and ask about the things you don't understand. Have conversations. Don't be shy. We're, we're a faith family. Don't be shy. We love you. We're the family of God. And, and here are just a few, very few of his very precious promises towards those of us who believe. I wanted to just read. There's probably dozens and dozens in the scripture. I just want to read a few to you. And I want uh, my hope for you this morning is that this would just set you up for success. You would hear God's heart towards you in all this. And any fear or apprehension would leave you this morning. Okay? So take this to heart, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Literally, let courage fill your hearts. Uh, I'm just going to read a few verses here, and then we're going to wrap up with some prayer. First uh, Peter 1.13, Therefore, he says, Preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, 100%, on what? On the grace that will be brought to you at the revealing of Jesus Christ. Set your mind fully. God has stored up grace for you, and when you step into his presence in eternity, he's going to just pour out all his grace on you. That's incredible. Isaiah 41.10, we're told by the prophet Isaiah, fear not. He's speaking on behalf of God. He says, fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What an incredible promise. First Peter 3, 13 to 16. Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, or don't be troubled, but in your hearts, here's what you've got to do. Set it in your heart today. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ Jesus as holy, and always be prepared to give a defense, to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. Are you living in such a way that people see your hope? Because they won't ask if they don't see your hope. Are you living in that way? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, to give them a reason for the hope that is within you. But do it with gentleness and respect, Peter says, having a clear conscience so that when you're slandered, and people will say bad things about you. When you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Oh, what a great promise. Let me give you just a couple more as we wrap up. Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that any opponent who comes against you would be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. That's how we're supposed to live, by the power of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as someone who's been approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, but who rightly handles 
the word of truth. Do you know how to rightly handle the word of truth? If the answer is no, text me. Text one of our elders. We would love to sit down with you and talk about the Bible and how to read the Bible in its context. I would delight to do that. Some of you are going, in the middle of your week, you know, oh, sad, he's so busy. I don't think he has time for me. No, 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 no. This is what God's called me to do. And all of our elders, whatever, whatever else they have going on, they love this stuff. They love you. And if I can't, if I can't make time this week, they can't, one of them, we, we love you. Do you like, look at me. Look at me. I love you. I love you. Call us. One more. One more. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. I love this. I love this passage. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. All right, I got to stop and tell you, tell you just a little quick, quick, quick story. When I was in high school, we moved into a brand new high school, had never been used before. And just off the choir room, between the choir room and the band room was a bathroom. There's a men's bathroom and a, and a girl's bathroom because we still just had men and women back then. And and then the guys, we had an ensemble. We had a small ensemble, a vocal ensemble, and we would go into the men's bathroom. We would cram in. There were about 10 guys, and we would, sing, we would practice sometimes in the bathroom because the bare concrete walls had incredible acoustic effect. And there was one spot in the room. You could find the center pitch of a room and find a tone, whatever the pitch, the ambient pitch of the room was. And if you sang that note clearly, one person suddenly the whole room would fill with sound and you would hear other notes that weren't being sung because the, 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 it was bouncing off the walls and cutting into each other the sound waves and creating other sounds that weren't being sung. It's incredible, incredible. And I think about that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I, I, I always think about that bathroom and that men's ensemble and the sound of, of singing and, and all of that just filling up this space in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing, there it is, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, even if you're a bad singer, you know you are. <laughs> whatever you do, whether it's word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through Him. Wow. Wow. So hardship, difficulty, and opposition do not mean that we're doing something wrong. In fact, it's often evidence we're doing something right. If we allow ourselves to be deterred from doing anything unless we have complete approval and it's super easy then we will certainly never accomplish anything of value for the kingdom. Rather than being discouraged by opposition, we need to take comfort in God's faithfulness and keep on doing what is right. I am insufficient, but Christ in me and through me is more than sufficient. We must remember that everything we have and everything we are belongs to Him. We don't need to worry about protecting ourselves or our self-interest. We can trust God to provide and care for us as we obey him. Amen. God will provide. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the breath of life today. Lord, we've heard your word. 
let it, let it get down deep in our hearts and take root in us and, and then use it this week. Use it in some capacity. Give us opportunities to make you known and to, sh- to just spread the love that you've poured into our lives, to make you known, to make your gospel known. Lord, we ask this uh, knowing that it's scary for us. We live in a culture that's increasingly hostile towards our belief system, but we love those people and we want them to know you. And so, Lord, give us strength, give us grace, pour out your mercy upon us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gather here every Sunday, get your instruction from the Lord, hear the word of God spoken. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it today, this week? Who are you going to tell about what Jesus is doing in your life, in your heart? So we're a go-tell people, not a, not a come-see. They can come see. They're welcome. But we're a go-tell people. So go tell people who Jesus is and what he's doing. And let's celebrate him. Let's not be ashamed or embarrassed or afraid. And I struggle with all three. So, yeah, let's go in the power of the Spirit and under his grace poured out on us. So go in his name. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.